coming up on this episode. You don't see the word tithe used very often in the New Testament, New Covenant. Mm -hmm. It's not given as a new command. Matter of fact, Jesus, Paul, and the other writers really don't talk about tithe. The only time Jesus really uses the word tithe is when he was um, scolding the Pharisees for their misuse of it. And that was, of course, under the Old Covenant. This gets interesting. Here's a question for you. Why do Christians, why do we Christians living in the New Covenant continue to use the Old Covenant command? Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. We're continuing our series on basics of Christian living. And today's topic is sort of a controversial one to many people. It's all about what's with offerings. What is this whole thing about giving an offering, you know, when you go to church? I'll tell you a story to start this off and why this became a topic that I was interested in. I was talking to a man, oh, this was several years ago, and about going to church. Now, he told me he used to go to church when he was like a teen and youth group and stuff and a young adult, but he doesn't go anymore. And when I asked him why he stopped going to church, um, he said, well, what happened was one day he's sitting in his church and sitting in a church pew. And he said it, it sort of dawned on him that the church was just constantly asking for money. Most of the sermons that the pastor were doing were about money. It seems like his church was just so concerned about getting money from him, he said, that they weren't concerned about my, my personal well-being or my personal growth, spiritual growth. So he said that's what was sort of focusing and, and sort of drew him away from this whole idea of, of going to church. Um, he summed it up by saying that the offerings taken in church seemed to be the most important thing to his church. That was the detail I got so much into. And he said, I just don't understand why some preachers want to, you know, beg people and tell people that you need to give to, to the church so that, and in his words, saying he, uh, the pastor can take a week off and only have to work one day a week on a Sunday. So he summed it up by saying it seemed like churches are just more interested in money than anything else. So he stopped going to church. Well, over the years, I've had similar, similar conversations with many other people. And they ask me a lot of times, are churches just out to get money? Many non-Christians. Um, when I talk to them and stuff, that's the opinion they often have. Our church is just trying to get money from us. If that's what their whole goal is. Um, they think that churches are just out to be money makers. What's really sad is even some Christians have asked me the same question. Why do we give offerings? Why do we give pass a plate or have little collection box and stuff around? Why do we do that? Now, some have asked um, that the have answered this by saying that the Israelites were told to do food offerings, um, but Christians only seem to be focused on money offerings. Obviously, if you read the Old Testament in the Torah, yeah, there were certain sacrifices that they gave, like a grain offering and stuff, but it seems like the church, he's, um, these people, these are many times Christians even saying that it seems like they're only focused on getting money. And many times I've been asked questions about Christians tithing 10% of their wages, and they want to know, what's that all about? I was preaching at a church one time, and a person came up to me right after. A Christian guy came up, um, him and his wife, and asked me, what's this whole thing about tithing? You know, why, why do we do that? So in this lesson, what I want to focus on in this lesson is on offerings and giving. Now, this is a touchy subject with many people. Now, I don't 
personally like to discuss this too much. I don't go into a lot of lessons and do a lot of preaching on this or speaking and teaching on it, particularly since I'm in full-time ministry myself. But it is important to know what God has to say about this in living our lives for Christ. No matter how you view it, it is a topic that is discussed both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Bible, or Testaments, if you want to use that, you prefer to use the word covenant. Um, Jesus and Paul addressed it on more than one occasion. They talked frequently about this. So there must be something that we should know as Christians um, that deal with doing offerings. Now, as I said, in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you come across God giving specific instructions for giving offerings. They're not to be given as a road or a method to salvation. We are saved by grace, not by works. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Giving an offering is not grace from God, but some people mistakenly think that is how we are saved. I've come across many people who have said that over the years. They have told me this. Uh, let me repeat it because it's so, so important. We are not saved by how much money we put into an offering plate. No, that is not it. True, the Jewish Talmud actually records some rabbis teaching that giving alms to the poor can earn your salvation, but God never said this. Matter of fact, Jesus talked against that. We are saved by grace through faith to do good works, to do good deeds. We're not saved by doing them. No, giving an offering is would be a deed or an action on our part to purchase, purchase salvation. That is not how salvation is accomplished. Salvation is accomplished by what God does through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, some people are confused about what an offering is and why it's so frequent in Christian churches today. You see, to understand this, we've got to go back all the way to the book of Genesis. Offerings and givings were instituted all the way back to Genesis. Even before the time of Moses, we see sacrifices and offerings already taking place in the Bible. Notice it exists even before, like I say, Moses gave the Torah um, on Mount Sinai to the people. Um, I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis 4 for a, to get started on this. In Genesis chapter 4, we read a very important passage, very familiar to most people. It has to do with Cain and Abel. And in verses 3, 4, and 5 of Genesis 4, we read, and this is out of the English Standard Version, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It's a familiar story most people are familiar with, having to do with Cain and Abel, which actually leads later on to the first murder. Um, as we read in this, Abel's uh, was a, his offering was a blood sacrifice of the best, the prime of his flocks, while Cain brought fruit. Abel's offering was acceptable to God, but God did not accept Cain's offering. I want to point something out very important here. Notice they were not commanded by God to do this. God didn't tell them how much even to bring. It appears to be totally voluntary offerings. But only one was acceptable to God, and that was the animal sacrifice given by Abel. 
Have you ever wondered why Cain's offering was not accepted? To find the answer to that, you got to go back another chapter. We got to go back to the first offering made in history, and that was by God Himself for Adam and Eve. It's recorded in chapter 3 after they had sinned. If you recall that famous story in chapter 3 of Genesis, they tried to cover up their sin, which had separated them from God. But what they did, they did with plants. Remember? Big leaves and stuff. They tried to use plants, which was not acceptable to God. No, that won't do it. God had to kill an innocent animal for them. Blood had to be shed. Do you now see that Abel was following God's example in his offering? Cain decided to voluntarily offer and worship God, but in a manner that was not by God's design. He was using plants. It was his own ideas. Thus, God did not accept it. Cain knew how to offer a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God, but he chose to worship God with a fruit salad. I mean, basically, that's what it was, I guess. God didn't kill him for this infraction, but he did not honor him either. There is a lesson here for us. This is so important. We are to worship God by his design, his way, not our man-made traditions. No, we do it by God's way. Now, we read about other sacrifices and offerings that are given. You go back um, or move forward now from, from that part of the book of Genesis, chapter 8. In verse 20, we come across Noah, and he is going to build an altar um, and sacrifice to God. It's in Genesis 8, verse 20. We read, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, notice, Noah offered sacrifices to God in the same plan and outline as God did in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Interesting, isn't it? Now, we move forward a little bit more. We get to a couple more chapters down. Chapter 12 of Genesis, we come across the story of Abraham. At this point, he's still called Abram. And in chapter 12, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Interesting, isn't it? Notice again that God didn't command he didn't command, he didn't ask Abram to do it. It was a voluntary thing. And there's more. You can move to the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 18. We read, So Abram moved his tent and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, pardon me for a moment, I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here for a second, because incidentally, archaeology has recovered and um, the, the spot where we believe this all occurred. During the 1920s, there was a famous German archaeologist, Evasterus Mater was his name. He was excavating what for centuries the locals in the area there in Judah around Hebron called Abraham's Spring, right in what is today Hebron. And as he was excavating in this large area, flat, solid rock there, he found potteries and remains of a stone altar right next to huge holes in bedrock that obviously were where huge tree trunks were um, back in antiquity. 
Obviously, large trees grew there. This said that by the oaks of Mamre is where this place was at, it tells us in Genesis 13, and there he built an altar. They found pottery, they found, found um, stoneware and stuff around there, all dating back to around the time of Abraham. Now, we don't know for absolutely certain because Abraham didn't write his name on it, but it does fit the biblical description absolutely perfectly. But getting back now to the sacrifice, again, God did not command Abram to do this. It was something Abram wanted, wanted to do to worship and honor God. He wanted to give back to God a small portion of what God had given him and for what God had done for him. This is an act of worship. Are you starting to see, I hope you are, that offerings or worship is something we give to God. We don't benefit from it. God receives honor. God receives glory by us doing these acts. Now, I want to take a moment to explain something here that is important in the church today. We often confuse in the modern church today, evangelical church in particular, we confuse the terms worship or sacrifice for the word praise. Worship and praise are not really synonyms. If you want to do a type of a Bible study called a word study, look at the words that are used for praise. Look for the words that are used in the Bible for sacrifice or offering. They're not the same. There's different words for them. The words used in Scripture most often in the Hebrew section, that's the Old Covenant, is the word shaha. Shaha, which is used 172 times in the Old Covenant. What does shaha mean? It means, it's, it's the word for worship to bow down, to pay homage, to submit to. That's what that word means. Now, in the New Testament, New Covenant, which is written in Greek, we have three different words in Greek that are often translated in almost all translations for the word worship. They are proskuneo. Proskuneo is used 60 times and means to prostrate oneself, to crouch down, to bow, to kiss the hand or the foot in submission. Humbling, humbling situation. Another word that is often used 21 times is the word latreuo. Latreuo is used to mean to render religious service or to minister to God. This is an act of worship, to serving God. That's what that is. And 21 times that's mentioned throughout the book or throughout the, the New Covenant. The third word is eusebeo, which is used only two times. Only two times. But what it means in Greek is to be pious, to be totally respectful, to honor somebody. Those are three words commonly translated as worship in the New Testament. Now, you had that one word primarily used in the Old Testament. You have these three words in the New Testament. Did you notice something? They are not synonyms for meaning to sing or to play instruments. Not there. All four of these words are referring to being in a state of humility, a state of showing respect, a state of, of homage, or a state of action in serving God. That's what worship is. Now, why do we sing in church services? How do we get into the calling? The singing portion um, of the church service is calling it worship. Many churches today do this. You know, 40, 50 years ago, it was never called that. We didn't have what we called 
worship teams. They were called praise teams um, or the music team. But today we erroneously call them worship teams. And I, I, it's, it's not what these words mean. Uh, it's, it's, we're, we're, taking a, we're changing the modern meaning of these things. Um, it's not a synonym that we routinely have for worship. So we're wrong, I believe. You may disagree with me, but I have the Bible words on my side helping to support my case here. I believe that this is wrong, that praise and worship are two different things. In fact, Scripture contains eight different words for praise, eight different descriptions on how to praise God. And they're not the same things as we see in the words for worship. In Hebrew, the one that is used quite often is called yada. Yada appears 114 times in the Bible. Of those 114 times, 53 of those times, it's using the root word yad, which means hands, indicating that you're going to praise the Lord primarily to lift your hands. Have you ever noticed Christians doing this in services? It's an open hand. It's not a closed hand. People will lift their hands in praise to God. That's what this is. That's the word that's used to describe this. It's, it's praising God by raising your hand. It's a form of praise. Another word that is used is the Hebrew word barak. Barak is used 330 times in the Old Testament. 330. Now, of that 330, 302 of those are specifically translated to bless. Bless the Lord. You see a lot of these in the book of Psalms, of course. Only two times of those 330 does it actually is being used in a form of kneeling as an act of adoration and praise. So that sort of gets a little bit into the same meaning of the word worship, where you're, you're kneeling and showing adoration um, or paying homage to. So you can see there is a little connection here that, for that one word. Another word that is used 11 times in scripture for praise is the word Shabbat. Shabbat means to praise loudly or shout in triumph, basically like singing, shouting to the Lord. That's what that is. That's Shabbat. And that's a praise term. Then we get to sheer. Sheer, 87 times used in scripture. This Hebrew word means literally to sing. Obviously, you're going to see this a lot in the book of Psalms also. This is what is usually used today. We, we use this as a synonym for the word worship. Shir and shaha carry different meanings, though. They're not the same. And you can see this very easily if you do a word study on the Bible. Modern Christians, what's going on, modern Christianity has taken the Christian music, and which we is, is doing a praise, shir, to the Lord, and we've turned it into the word for worship. It's not exactly the same thing. No. Another word that is used 45 times in the Bible for praise is the word zamar. Zamar means to praise with, and I like this one, with instruments. Singing praises with instruments, letting your fingers get involved in the worship like that. Playing an instrument, I think, is absolutely amazing. I am not gifted in that aspect. Um, my my siblings were gifted at that kind of thing, particularly my oldest sister, Bon. She's very gifted 
uh, organist, pianist, et cetera. She's very gifted at that. And others, uh, my wife is, has a gift for that type of thing. She's, she plays guitar, she sings praises to the Lord, but she will say you, you know, tell you that she's praising the Lord. And the word that she, basically she's doing here, according to the Bible, the biblical term is zamar. She's praising the Lord with her instrument. If you play an instrument, for God and praising it, maybe a cello, a violin, piccolo, whatever, even a ukulele, you can actually praise the Lord because that's zamar. Another word, you're going to recognize this one, most people will, halal. Halal, it's used 165 times in scripture. Again, a lot of times mostly in a book of Psalms because Psalms is a book of songs and praising God. Halal means to boast or to praise out loud. Again, saying things out loud. It's where we get the word hallelujah, which is actually that word hallel, and we just put the suffix uh, yah at the end, hallelujah. Yah is a shortened name for um, God's holy name, like Yehovah, um, sometimes translated Yahweh or whatever. Um, but that's what that is. It's a short name for God. So it's praise God. When you say hallelujah, um, Hallelel, um, you're boasting, praising, <clears throat> and you're praising God. Because his name's right in the word. How cool is that? There's another word that's used. Tehillia. Tehillia is a word found 57 times in scripture. I think I'm really butchering the Hebrew on this one. Tehila. There we are. Um, and it means to praise with a song or with a hymn. Now, this again is what most churches today were calling worship when it in fact is actually praising God. Praise and worship are different. The last word I wanna tell you is the word toda. Now toda is used 32 times in the Old Covenant. What it means is to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's a type of praise also, but it's, it's having to do with giving to God something. You notice we're not getting something from this, we're giving to God. So I hope that you can understand by doing a word study of the Bible, particularly with worship and praise, you can see that they're two different things. They are not simonious. Um, though it is true, I'll be honest, it is true that at times praise can be a type of worship. True, it can. Um, but really, worship means something a little different. Praise, I like to refer to praise as more like the hors d'oeuvre when you go to a church service that, that gets us to be led into a point of worship, that we start to, to get ready to get into worship. That's what the praise is. Um, but I fear too often that church services today, what we end up doing is people go and they eat a lot of the hors d'oeuvres at the table and fail to feast upon the main course of worshiping Almighty God. We leave, sometimes I feel people leave having our spiritual stomachs filled with the hors d'oeuvres instead of, of offering to God the worship that's due to him. Let's move on for a moment. Let's take a look at another verse of the Bible. Then I'm going to quote Paul. Paul wrote this under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing this to the Romans, and he's talking about worship. Notice in Romans 12, 1, probably a verse many of you probably quote to me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now here, we see two terms that we already used. One is the term worship, which is the Greek word being translated here, latreia, which is the root word of latreuo, which as we said, that, re that refers to serving, to a service rendered to God. That's what that is saying. Um, and in almost all translations, it's translated as the word worship. But there was also another word in there hidden, if you saw it, it was the word sacrifice. This is a Greek word, um, thusuria, which means, it's a term for, how should we say, uh, sacrificing or actually making an offering, which as we've seen from the book of Genesis and stuff, and we've talked about, this is actually having to do with worship also. I mean, it goes back to Genesis and the law, what you see in the Torah. When you see these two words, these two terms for worship, worship and sacrifice, um, being used in conjunction concerning something we should do. That's what this verse is saying. We should be doing this. And this gets to the theme of sacrificing to God. Now, why do we sacrifice to God? This gets back to the whole point we're trying to make here. What in the world is an offering? We make an offering, we're making some type of a sacrifice. Now, there's many reasons why we should sacrifice. We Christians should sacrifice uh, to God. Many reasons. Um, thankfulness. I mean, just think about all that he's done. I know Americans generally do that for a short time on the fourth uh, Thursday of uh, November, but it's something we should do <laughs> often, very often. I mean, he deserves it. it. It honors him. It's our duty. And there are, there are many more reasons. Maybe to help you understand this, let's go back for a second. You see, when you would offer a lamb, according to the, to the biblical times, the ancient period, when you made an offering of a lamb to God as an act of worship, what you're doing, you're not really sacrificing just an animal. You're not going to give God some spare ribs here and, you know, um, a lamb shank or something like that. That's not what it was. We are sacrificing ourselves. This animal is our substitution. That's what it is. In sacrificing, this is very important, in sacrificing as an act of worship, the lamb actually represents us. You get that? We, that lamb we take to put on the altar, that represents us. Now, it's interesting, when you go back into the book of Leviticus and Numbers, you will see how this was done. It was interesting. Because after the blood is drained, which would be poured out, the blood is drained out, they cut the head of the animal off and they throw it onto the altar to burn. They would take the four legs of the animal, cut them off, put them on and sacrifice them. The heart would be removed. Now, it's sort of gory, but the heart would be removed and it would be burnt. Also, this one's a little hard for Westerners to understand, there are large pockets of adipose tissue or fat and they would pull these out most of it was surrounding on the back, um, the ventral side, back where the kidneys are. They would rip these out and they would throw that fat onto the, the altar also and burn that. The rest of the animal was discarded outside of the camp or outside of the temple, outside of the city. The Levites would take it out to the garbage dump. But those things, which represent you, remember, those things are what you are sacrificing to God. Why did God tell people to do this? What's this all meaning? This is so cool. 
Each piece, as I said, represents something we are sacrificing to God as an act of worship. Can you figure them out? You sac they cut off the head, you sacrifice the head. What are you doing? We're sacrificing our mind and our thoughts to God. Yeah, we dedicate them to God. The legs. The legs have bone and skeletal muscle. What that represents is our actions, our behaviors, what we do. Think about it. How can you move around? How can you go places? How can you do things without using your limbs? Thus, they are dedicated, your actions, your behaviors, what you do is dedicated to God as an act of worship. When they would take the heart out of the animal and throw it onto the, the grates and, and burn it on the wood, the heart, very easy to understand by most people, represented your emotions. I'm going to give God and sacrifice to God my emotions, my passions as an act of worship. And finally, the fat. The fat represents the soul. It's what's inside of us and supplies us with insulation, protection, energy, power to do things. It's very precious to us. If you take out all your fat, you die. We are sacrificing to God our souls as an act of worship. Now, if this sounds strange to you, I wouldn't be too surprised because a lot of times this isn't often taught in many church services today. Um, Messianic Jews often understand this very easily. But, um, well, Jesus actually gave this answer. When he was asked by a scribe, what was the greatest commandment? And this takes place in Mark chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 29 and 30. Because this scribe, who's an expert in the Jewish law, he knows the Old Testament. I mean, he, he's a person who copies it and, and everything. He's got it, most of it memorized. This guy is really smart. And he asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all? We'll read it here. Mark 12, 29 and 30. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Did you catch it? I hope I made that clear for you. Jesus is pointing out to this scribe who is raised on this sacrificial system, who's very familiar with this, and he tells us that our primary goal, the greatest commandment we can have, is to worship God in those four ways, which was the animal. In other words, you're giving your life to God. That is why we exist. Did you hear that? Maybe you who are struggling, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? You just heard the answer to that. Why we exist? To be in a personal relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, and to worship Almighty God. That's why you exist. Oh yeah, people try all sorts of things trying to find their purpose in life, who they're going to marry, what kind of car they're going to drive, what their house is going to be like, what kind of career they're going to do. That is so secondary, third, I mean, just go down the list. The most important thing is to worship Almighty God and be in this relationship close to him so that you can do this. The point I'm making here about offering is that we should do this. We should offer to God a portion back of what he has given us 
That's why we give or we take offerings. No, it doesn't save us. Not at all. No, it doesn't make God love us more. If I put more offering in the, in the plate, if I put more money in there, if I put bigger bills and stuff, oh, God will love me more. He'll bless me more. No, God never says that. That is not true. Because God already loves you with what we call agapeo love, which is unconditional and maximum. You, God can't love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more. How many Christians even mess up on this? That they feel like, you know, God doesn't love me. God's mad at me or something, and he doesn't really want to be around me. That is Satan's lie to you because God loves you so much. We've really lost that a lot of times. So why should we worship? Why do we do this? We should want to do it to honor him, to glorify him. Earlier, I noted that many Christians today associate singing in church as the worship service. And I hope you see now that actually the singing aspect of the church is, uh, that we do in service is more of a praise time to help set our hearts and our minds to come into the worship. When we sing praises to God in song, when we lift our hands, when we, we play instruments with our fingers and our lips and stuff, singing hymns and stuff like this, using our voices in testimony and in service, you realize what you're doing? You're offering up a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. True, this can be a form of worship. But it's more accurately, according to the Bible, called praise. And we should praise the Lord. Why? Because he is worthy. That's why. We're his creation. That's why we should give glory, honor, and praise to him. But in a church service, there is, in most services, a time separated for a specific point of worship. Now, worship can be during the sermon. You might hear God speaking. The Holy Spirit might speak to you and make changes in you. And if you do these changes, that's a form of worship because you're now taking parts of the offering and you're changing and going through a metamorphosis, which God wants us to do. We commonly call that sanctification and stuff like this. But there's also something now, something else here. Bowing down and humbling ourselves, being pious and respectful, showing him honor. They did this in ancient times by doing it with a sacrifice, with an offering. Now, we don't today offer God blood sacrifices. We just don't do that. You don't go up to the pulpit and they slaughter a lamb. No, we don't do that today, as they did back in Genesis or throughout the Mosaic Code, especially um, those sacrifices are mentioned in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. That was the old covenant system. We're in the new covenant. We are required, though, um, well, you see, those were required, I should say this first. Those were required to be done in the tabernacle or in the temple. That's where they, once those structures were made, because that's where God was manifest, that's where you did these. But, as you know through history, the temple was destroyed by the Romans after Jesus fulfilled his sacrifice became the perfect Lamb of God for us. So today, Christians, we are the temple of the Lord. We are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. From the time of the apostles, a section of worship in church services has always been included, or should be, be included in here. And we know that in the early church, they did actually worship. They did praise and they did worship. Now, how can I say that? Well, there's ancient sources that describe this, but one I want to tell you about is probably coming from one of the most unlikely sources 
about how an early church service was done. It was written by a non-Christian Roman historian whose name was Pliny the Younger. Now, he lived at the time of the apostles during the first century. And he wrote many things. Many of his writings have survived to this day. In one of his writings, it's called The Letters, in section 10, um, part 96, he describes an early church service done during the time of the apostles. This is what he wrote about it. Quote, they, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. And they bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind." Unquote. Notice what Piney says about this church service. They start off by singing hymns, praising. Then they made vows, they made oaths, they showed honor and respect to God. They're offering their lives. They're changing their ways of living. They're hearing the word of God and it's affecting them and changing and metamorphosizing them. This is a form of worship. And then at the end where it talks about the food part, that fruit part uh, at the end here dealt with having the Lord's Supper, following the communion and stuff like this. That was there. So you see, we see both praise and we see worship in the same thing. Pliny continues to give us more insight about this and to help as I'm making my case here, gives us a little bit more evidence that what I'm saying is true. You see, Pliny wrote that if a person, someone who was accused of being a Christian, was brought in, they would be given a test. Uh, the emperor would give a test, and he would have them do this publicly, that if they were a Christian, um, and to test them if they were a Christian, and the way that they tested was to make them offer to an idol, an offering of flesh and wine. Now, true Christians, Pliny understood the difference between true Christians and non, you know, and false Christians. Pliny understood that there were indeed Christians if they totally refused to do that. Because he understood true Christians would only worship Christ. Notice, did you catch it? The test involved a sacrifice. They took an offering? That was the test. Giving an offering to an idol or to Trajan the emperor who was worshipped as God was something Pliny knew no true Christian would ever do. Pliny also wrote later on in that section, same section I read, he noted that if people just said, I am not a Christian or I am a Christian, if someone just said that, yes, I'm a Christian, and even if they swore by it or swore an oath to it, Pliny realized that was not enough, just words were not enough. It was the actions involved. And he would make them, the emperor would make them do the sacrifice. That would prove to them if they're really Christians or not. False Christians were around just like they are today. There are people who mouth off that they're Christians and they, they say things, but their actions, their true worship is, is not correct. 
So they use, I just find it interesting that the Romans actually wouldn't take the word of somebody if they were a Christian or a not a Christian. They made them actually perform a sacrifice. You do a sacrifice, you sacrifice this animal to this idol, to Zeus or whatever, or um, to one of the other gods and things, or even to Trajan. If you do that, we know you're not a Christian. That was the test. It was the action. It wasn't the words. You see, now we're back to that word offering. Offering related directly to worship. You see this? Thus, in a church service, like we would see today in most churches, we have a time for giving. There's a time that an offering plate might be passed around. There's a time for doing what? Making a sacrifice. Not just mouthing it, making a sacrifice. I had the honor this Sunday of the church that I go to here in West Bend area. I heard our pastor, as the church service started, before anything got going, he stood up at the front. Actually, it was a recording of him doing this. He was in the back of the church. But this is how it started. He, he was, had a video of himself, and he said something that really hit me strong. Um, I heard this, this pastor of mine, his name's Vince. Vince actually said that, uh, began the service by telling people that we have come to praise God and to worship God. He went on to say that if you wish to worship God, he's talking to the congregation, if you want to worship God by making an offering, you are welcome to do this as, and he said, an act of worship. You got it right. I liked how he separated the act of worship from just singing. Because that's what it really is. I love this church. If you want to know where I go, send a text if you're in the area or contact us. I'll be glad to tell you where I go. It reminded me of another story. As I sat there and I heard uh, Pastor Vince say this, I sat there and it brought back a memory of a story I once heard a long time ago um, of a, a, a little boy in a church service. Let's see, a, a little young child was probably about four or five years old, was sitting in a church um, in a pew with his parents in between his mom and dad. And the pastor got up and was explaining, just before the offering was going to be given, what offerings were, what this time of offering was. And he explained that the offering plates were going to be passed through the congregation, that it was an act of worship. This pastor explained, just before the offerings given, what an act of worship is, to make a sacrifice to God, to make a change in your life to God. That is an act of worship, to humble yourself. No longer are you that important. God is what is important. And to humble yourself like that. Well, after the explanation, the ushers started passing. As you see many times in services, they passed these collection plates they were using. When it came to the aisle where the boy was sitting between his mom and dad, the mom had the plate, handed it to the little boy. The boy took it and was supposed to just hand it to the dad. But he paused when he got it. And he just sort of looked in it. Oh, he wasn't counting the money, which is what people in the area, I'm sure, were thinking. What's he doing, counting the money? No, he did something absolutely remarkable. What he did, he took the offering plate to the amazement of everybody around, and he put it on the floor in front of him. Then he got up, and he stood in the plate. Then he stepped back out, leaned over, picked it up, handed it to his dad, who was having tears in his eyes. This young little boy totally got what the offering was, a true act of worship. Do you realize he was offering himself to God? That 
is worship. This is worship, folks. Because in biblical times, one would bow down and humble themselves before God during an, altar, uh, an offering or a sacrifice. You would bow down. Unfortunately, today, most evangelicals, we re just don't like to bow down. Um, other denominations frequently bow down um, to, uh, you know, before God and stuff like this. I do challenge everybody at some point, try it. Try getting on your knees, literally getting on your knees in a humble position and talk to God and offer to God and speak to him. But like I say, most of the times, most evangelicals seldom ever do the shaha, that's the bowing down, paying homage, uh, or the proskuneo, to prostrate yourself, to crouch, to kiss your, uh, the hand or the foot in total submission and humility, or even latreuo, to render a religious service or to minister to God. No. Instead, what do we do? We love to sing with instruments, and on occasion, we will yada, lift our hands up um, during a church service. Those are praise things. That's praising God, which, yes, we should be doing that. But it's not quite the same as worship. I hope you're seeing this now. But I often hear from Christians referring to the music portion of our services as, and this is sad, I, how many times I hear this, and it just really breaks my heart, that Christians will come out of a church if they're visiting a church or something like this, or even a church they go to will come out and they'll say something like, wow, I just really didn't get that emotional high during the song service today. I really didn't feel like the song service brought me into the presence of God. Well, listen, folks, that's not what praise is supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be getting something from that. Praise is something you give to God. How many times I try to explain to people, if you're feeling this way, your motive is wrong. You're not going in giving to God. You're wanting something in return here. That's not what we're supposed to do. We go to worship and to praise God. It's not about receiving from God. It's giving to God. Giving, not receiving. You catching this? That's what's to do with offering. Now, what's this whole business about the tithe? I mentioned earlier in here. What in the world is this whole tithe business? And I've had many people ask that. Um, why should we tithe? Why do people tithe, et cetera, et cetera? Um, tithing actually is the idea of bringing a tenth of your income or your wages to present to God, to offer to God as a sacrifice, as an offering. That's why we call it offerings. Um, now, the word tithe is just a simple word, and it means literally a tenth of, a tenth. In the New Covenant, it's referred to as a decad. A decad, you might catch this term, deca from Greek, meaning uh, it's a science or a math term, meaning for a tenth. In science, we use these a lot in measurements and, and ways and all sorts of things like this. A deca, decameter, decagrams, et cetera, et cetera. It means a tenth. But the word most often used in the Old Covenant is the word maser, which means to bring a tithe. That's what it means, to bring a tithe, to bring a tenth of what you have. So where did this get started? Well, if you go back again to the book of Genesis, before the time of Moses, go back to Abraham. Abraham gave a Maseir. Jacob gave a Maseir. The Hebrew people gave a Maseir according to the law of Moses. The law required it, that you re were required to bring a tent. It was something that God set up in the Old Covenant. And we read of Jews doing this form of worship throughout the Old Testament through these books. And even uh, the book of Nehemiah talks a great deal about it. And many of the minor prophets also talk about doing a tithe, bringing this tent. But this is what's interesting. You don't see the word tithe used very often in the New Testament, New Covenant. Mm -mm. It's not given as a new command. Matter of fact, 
Jesus, Paul, and the other writers really don't talk about tithe. The only time Jesus really uses the word tithe is when he was um, scolding the Pharisees for their misuse of it. And that was, of course, under the Old Covenant. This gets interesting. So here's a question for you. Why do Christians, why do we Christians living in the New Covenant continue to use the Old Covenant command? Ever think about that? Now, if you didn't know that tithe is not really mentioned in the New Testament, something is required by a law, you might be puzzled by all this. Um, first time I heard this many, many years ago or came across this, it, uh, it totally floored me. Um, like, wow, my parents always gave a tithe. Uh, I often, in, you know, would, would tithe, always sit down and do the 10th and, you know, 10% and stuff like this. But it's not in the New Covenant. It really isn't. It's not there. One person, when I asked them why they tithe, they said, you know, that they tithe. I asked them, why do you tithe? And he, this was the answer he gave me. He says, because it tells us this in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Hmm. I said, so do you believe, do you follow this because it's in the Old Covenant? Do you follow all of the laws of the Old Covenant? And he replied, not thinking too carefully on this, he said, yes, I do. I try to follow all the laws of the Old Covenant. Well, if you don't know, there's 613 of those. Now, in this, in this circumstance, I had, I sometimes like to do things like this. Um, forgive me, Lord. I noticed the guy was wearing more than one type of material. Uh, he had like, you know, a, I can't remember now, it was a, like a cotton thing, and he had something that was a synthetic blend also. He's wearing both. And so I, I said, well, if, if you tithe because it's in the Old Covenant, why are you breaking the Old Covenant law that you're not allowed to wear two different materials on your body at the same time because <laughs> it's in there folks it's there they were the Jews were told to do this to show them to be a separate people that they were separate and a holy people wearing one type of material showed purity because God is pure and since God is holy and pure they're supposed to be holy and pure so when I asked him that <laughs> he, he gave me the most confused look on his face and I asked him if he still performs then all the sacrifices according to law. Now, he replied at this point, of course, um, no, he, he didn't. And in a few moments, you could just see it dawning. You see the gears turning in his head. He began to see his air of his thinking. True. Listen carefully now. Don't misquote me on this. Some laws of the old covenant are carried and transferred into the new covenant. Jesus did this. The Ten Commandments, for instance. And there's others. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's in Leviticus. It's also in Mark. We also have love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus. We also see that um, being mentioned in the Gospels. And, and also Peter talks about it and stuff. But the thing is, not all 613 Old Testament or Old Covenant laws were carried over into the New Covenant. Jesus fulfilled these for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Because as Paul wrote in the book of Romans, it's almost impossible to try and keep all these things. You know, he tried so hard, and it's so hard to keep all these laws. Um, they weren't there to, to try and give us a hardship. God gave us those laws to show us how unholy we really are. That's what this was about. So Jesus fulfilled it for us. But then he did take certain commands from the Old Covenant and put it into the New Covenant. And you can study those and see what's there. There's not as many. So um, now or you might be wondering, well, you mean we're not supposed to tithe? We're not supposed to give to God? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. 
the Holy Spirit informed Paul to write specifically on this detail. Now, we don't have time to go into the whole thing here, but if you want to look about Christian giving, I suggest you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, because Paul points out to the church about giving, how Christians should give back to God as a form of worship and of thanksgiving. Same type of method as we see in the Old Covenant. Paul used an example about this to them of a church in um, Macedonia. I, I will read this part. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses uh, 3 through 6. We read, as Paul is talking about giving now into the church, he's talking to the Corinthian church, but he's going to reference the Macedonian church. For they, this is the Macedonian church, according to their means, according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Okay, what did I just read? If I lost you, there's key things. Paul is talking about how this Macedonian church, which is going through difficulty, is giving an offering. The church is taking up an offering and they're using it to honor God, to glorify God. Now remember, Paul is writing this under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that these Christians gave, here's the words, of their own accord. Of their own accord. Notice it doesn't say gave a tithe. Tithe isn't mentioned at all in either chapter. Paul is telling us that we should give to God what we can accord. He also added, this is important in this passage, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the church took an offering for God and then that church used it to help another church, to help other people. Tithe is not even used here. In fact, like I say, it's not stated as a command given to Christians in the New Covenant. That might shock many of you. Don't take my word for it. Go back and check yourself. You will see that in Paul's writings, as he's teaching about this, you're not going to see the word tithe. Mm -mm. And do you realize that this Macedonian church, I mean, what a magnificent church how sold out they were for God. It was full of Christians having, as we go back and we look at history, they were having a very hard time. This, these Christians in, in the land of Macedonia were going through a lot of suffering, a lot of trials, a lot of anguish. And the thing is, they still gave to God an offering first. They still, for what they could afford, what they could take from their income, they felt like God has still given us so much, we're going to give back to God what we can. It wasn't a tithe. It was whatever they could offer first, what one family could do or another family. Some probably could not afford 10%. Others could go way beyond that. And so they gave according to what they had. That's how it's supposed to be done. This is in the New Covenant. This is what Paul is teaching us about how we tithe. And it's just not Paul. Remember, this is coming directly from the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a tithe, but it was what they offered first to God. They gave back first to the Lord. You see, folks, this is what we're supposed to do. Tithing is part, the word tithing is an Old Covenant term. We 
New Covenant Christians are to give first to God from our wages, our income, our lives as an offering to God as a sacrifice. Remember, this was a sacrifice, what Paul is telling us of the Macedonians. If it was a sacrifice to them, it should be a sacrifice to us too. Nothing is stated here in chapter 8 or 9 about 10%. Each should give what he can afford as an offering to the Lord. Then, when the offering plate moves through the congregation, please understand, don't take out your calculator, try and figure out, okay, what's my income this week? What's 10% of that? What should I put in the offering plate? That is not what God's asking you to do. He's not asking for that. That was old covenant that you tithe, even down to, as Jesus was telling the Pharisees, that they tied down to the, to the leaf of mint. That's not what, what God was saying. So don't do that. No. Um, be like the Macedonians. Figure out what you can, what you can afford, what you think you can honor God with. Remember, the whole thing is to show respect and honor. You just don't throw it in your strike making God love you more. What? Can you give back to God because everything belongs to him? What we have is only what he's letting us borrow from him for the time being. How much will we give back to him? And if a church is walking close with God, it is to be used, this money that is collected, as Paul says in this, it's to be used by the congregation. Church, just like the temple in the Old Testament and stuff, they had bills to pay. They had to upkeep the building. They had to pay bills. Churches today, too, we have electric bills, air conditioning bills, heating bills, etc. You have to pay a pastor a reasonable salary. Reasonable. Um, Paul didn't walk around with the gold robes and stuff. No. Reasonable salary. And for those people who are in need, that money goes to that. This is to be used for service to God, which goes back to one of the terms we had for worship, which is la treuo. That's what that is. You see, in the Old Covenant, offerings and sacrifices to God were made as an act of worship. But they also paid for the upkeep of the temple, the priests, the Levites' salaries came out of that and helped them serve God full time. It was for helping people, people who were in need. The goals here are intact in the New Testament, in the New Covenant as well. It's just the word tithing's not. My friends, we are to give to God first as an act of worship and thanksgiving. Then what we are to give next is what we can afford to help spread his kingdom. That's what this offering stuff is all about. I hope this cleared up a lot of things. I probably really put out some things you never heard before because you don't often hear sermons breaking down this whole aspect in, in this way. We've done this. I wish I could spend more time with you on these topics and stuff, but I do encourage you, do a word study on praise and worship. Look at the different examples throughout the Old and the New Covenant. See how it was done. And those, when you go to church, you go to church, think about this now as an act of worship. Like that little boy standing in the offering plate what a beautiful example. Father, we thank you so much for this time and for this lesson. We thank you for your word and being able to understand and how your spirit, Lord, opens up passages to us to let us understand. 
Forgive us when we don't study it too carefully. But Lord, I pray that you'll just put a burning desire inside of us to get to know you more. And Lord, to really get into the act of worship. Not just living off the hors d'oeuvres, but feasting upon the worship for you. Because you are worthy. In Jesus' name and for his kingdom and glory, we pray. Amen. So, until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Support the show. Become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give.